Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Danny Callow, who's the CEO of African Gold Group, who are a Canadian exploration and development company with its focus on developing a gold platform in West Africa. Um, Danny's a mine engineer by background and has worked across Africa for many years in uh, different jurisdictions. Um, So has a wealth of knowledge, experience, and and imagine a few stories to tell. So let's get Danny, um, let's introduce Danny um, and get him on the podcast and let's hear his story. So I want to welcome Danny. How are you doing, Danny? Yeah, great, Rob. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, I appreciate appreciate your time. So yeah, I wondered if you can um, give the audience uh, a background about yourself, um, how how obviously you got into the industry um, and your experience um, and your, your career, how it's developed to uh, sort of present day. Sure. So um, I'll be showing my age when I tell you how long I've been in the <laughs> industry. It's about 28 years. I'm a mining engineer, as you mentioned. Um, studied out of the Camborne School of Mines in Cornwall in the UK and realised in 1992 that there weren't many opportunities in mining within the UK. So packed my bags and went across to South Africa at the time and I joined Goldfield. So I really hit the ground running in the deep level gold mines of, of Southern Africa, which are still very tough and were tough in those days as well. Um, I did quite a few years on those mines. I did a little bit of a branch out into um, the service support industry. So, you know, drilling companies and equipment supply companies all within the mining industry. And then about 13 years ago, jumped back into the production side of op- or operational side of mining when I joined Glencore. Uh, I joined Glencore to build the first of their large mining operations in uh, cent- in Central Africa, in, in, in the DRC. Um, it was their first foray into the DRC, so it was a greenfields plant. Um, and we built Matanda Mine up into a 200,000-ton copper, 30,000-ton cobalt mine in, in, in the space of a few short years. After doing that, I then moved to, to run one of their most difficult assets in Zambia, Mapani Copper Mines, a big underground uh, copper mine, um, very deep, very hot, very wet, um, very challenging, about 25,000 employees, big, big mine. Um, And ran that for about four years. And during that time, we completely reinstalled all of the the sort of, or replaced all of the old aging infrastructure with a lot of um, new infrastructure, modern infrastructure. Um, And that's really a mine that's now only going to start to show recovery as a lot of the old stuff is shut down. And then for the last five years in Glencore, I... I ran their Central African or their African Copper Cobalt Division. Um, so I had a, a responsibility for the three big mines that they had in that region, Mapani that I ran, um, Mumi that I built, and then Katanga, which is now their flagship copper cobalt mine in, in Central Africa. So we we took that over when it was struggling. Um, we, we installed or built a brand new uh, copper cobalt process plant um, called the Holo Leach. And that's now ramped up to 300,000 tonnes of copper per year and about 30,000 tonnes of cobalt. And it's probably one of the biggest mines in Africa now. So, you know, that is, that is I guess, my, my sort of operational background before I joined AGG. Um, I then decided to take a bit of a, 
a change of life. Um, personally, I was spending a lot of time away from home, about 300 days a year. Um, that was for the last five years of, of my Glencore days. I then decided to take a bit of a sabbatical, um, write a book, uh, which I'm still busy with, um, spend some time with the family and do a little bit of consulting and just have a look around and see what was available. It, I stumbled upon this opportunity with, with African Gold Group. Um, it is a um, it was a, a, a company that had been around a long time, but in my opinion, has really not had a lot of structural focus to it. Um, so I had a look at it. Gold was coming back. Um, we, we were all very bullish on gold. It was something that I started my career in uh, in gold. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to go back in um, to a sort of a greenfields opportunity and uh, start the process all over again, but in a, in a sort of a less stressed environment, I guess. So that's that's what I that's what I when I when I got involved in African Gold Group, and since then we've spent a lot of time um, sorting out the data, doing a lot more drilling, a lot more test work, and we delivered a definitive feasibility study in July of last year, which I think is a very compelling study, um, which we're very happy to talk about, um, and that's where I get to 28 years later today. Yeah, before we talk about African Gold Group, um, you mentioned uh, a book. Wonder if you can uh, let us know what the book's about, how far you've got, how far you've gone, how far you got to go. So, so look, I, I, you know what? I've over my career, I've probably employed about sixty or seventy graduates from from the mining industry. Um, all of them come into mining a bit like I did, you know, quite quite sort of uh, eager, eager, big egos think that we're the mine manager already, um, and then we realise that mining is one of those games that you have to learn the business from the ground up. And you have to do the hard yards before you can start telling other people what to do. So I, I sort of started it off as memoirs for my grandchildren. So, you know, the life of a mining engineer, but it sort of morphed into something more um, about, you know, if you want to go into this game called mining, what are some of the pitfalls that you need to avoid? What are some of the mistakes that you're probably going to make? And uh, what lessons have I learned over my 28 years so far? And what lessons can I maybe help others with to, 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 to get, get on? So it will probably end up being a, a combination of something for the family and something hopefully that, you know, someone can pick up and read and realise that this is an amazing industry. Um, it hasn't really changed in a couple of hundred years. Uh, you know, it's obviously got a lot more advanced and, and, and less dangerous and more te technological, but ultimately it's still a tough industry that breeds tough people and, you know, it'd be good to be able to pass on some of my, my, my anecdotes and stories and fun that I've had along the way. Um, because at the end of the day, working is about, you know, being working hard, but also having a bit of fun doing it. And I think mining is one of those industries that allows you to do that. Yeah. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but how far are you uh, down? How far are you along in the book and roughly when could it all be completed? Well, I'm, well, I'm, well, I'm 50 years old and I'm, I'm thinking I'm up to about 26 years old now. So unfortunately, <laughs> lots more things have happened to me in the last 24 years. So it'll probably be a bit longer. But yeah, look, I mean, my, I, I was hoping to have finished it by now, but things got a bit busy. I think by the end of this year, I'll be finished. And uh, you know what? It'll be, uh, it, 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 will be, it will be good for me and the family. And whether anybody else reads it, I don't really mind. It's just something that I wanted to put my stories down and and let everybody know what a, what a great industry this is yeah well hopefully hopefully if you do publish it i'm sure some of our listeners uh, will be able to purchase a copy if it goes if you go down that route um look either going to end up with about 400 copies on my bookshelf or some people will buy it 
<laughs> got you, got you. Um, just before I go into some questions, just want to um, um, hope everyone will can share this podcast, this episode to uh, your friends and family. Um, also, those that are watching on YouTube, appreciate if you can share and like below so more people can get access to this uh, particular episode and the other episodes that we produce. Um, so, Danny, why don't you give us a, just a, a brief overview of African Gold Group? Okay, so we, we have our primary uh, or flagship asset is in southern Mali. Um, it's a 100,000 ounce per annum gold project. So we, we have the capability to produce 100,000 ounces a year. Um, as I mentioned, we've finished a definitive feasibility study right now, which, is, which has very compelling numbers. Um, we also have an option on a, on a property in, in Burkina Faso. Um, Northern Burkina Faso isn't the greatest place to be right now, so we've sort of put that on, on, on ice for the time being um, and focused all of our energies on, on the Fabada project, which is our flagship Mali project. Mali is obviously a country that people uh, raise their eyebrows a little bit about, but I think there's a few things that people don't know about Mali. It's the third biggest gold producer in Africa. All of the majors are operating in there, so from Barrick to Anglo Gold Ashanti to Resolute um, and Ultimately, a B2 gold. Um, ultimately, um, it is a very safe country in that southwestern part. Um, there's never been a day's disruption from any, any form of criminal or security incidents. Um, and, it's a, and it's a very continuous gold belt from the northwest where you've got sort of Sadiola mine up there, right down to the, to the southwestern part of the country. We're on the Guinea border, about four or five kilometers away, but only three hours access from Bamako, the capital. So logistics is very straightforward. We have access to maybe six ports within the West African region that can bring equipment in. So, you know, this is not Central Africa, 2000 kilometers from the nearest port. This is very accessible um, and and proven time and time again that it's a, it's a really good jurisdiction to, to invest and, and build, build operations in. Um, the project itself is a very straightforward project. It's open pit. Um, it's free dig predominantly. Um, we, we probably would have to blast only about 5% of the 27 million tons that we intend to take out. It's all oxides in the sense that we're only focusing on the oxides now. We do have a big sulfide ore body below it, and we started to drill out that as we drill through the oxides, but we'll worry about that later. And the plant itself is a very straightforward West African staple, I guess, um, gravity plus CIL. Um, very good gold recoveries at 96% um, gold um, and very quick leaching reaction time, which means that we use much less reagents, um, power um, and, and things like that in, in, the, in the ultimate process. And that's why this project comes in at around $700 an ounce operating cost and about $782 an ounce all in sustaining costs. So as a standalone project, it's great. MPVs of 284 million pre-tax and about 45% um, IRR. Um, there's massive upside on that. And, and I'll happily talk a little bit about the upside because it, it really is huge. Um, but as a standalone project right now, it's a very good project. Okay. Um, just a little bit, little bit going backwards, what enticed you to join African Gold Group? Um, and I suppose what should investors be interested in, obviously, um, the company um, and obviously the operation you have in Mali. Yeah, look, I, I guess I'm a bit of an anomaly in a, in a junior gold company. Um, typically, the CEO is a geologist. Um, 
their primary role is to develop the asset and get it to a stage where it's either saleable or you know you can bring in somebody to build it. Um, I came in as a as a mine builder, so I, I always had the intention when I joined. I said to the board, "I'm only coming here if you give me a mandate to build this project. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit drilling it for the next 15 years until we get a you know a great big resource and then try and sell it to a major." Um, so I think that's a little bit different to, to most of the guys. What attracted me? Um, look, I've worked in in large corporates where where the sort of bureaucracy of corporates really overtakes the the mining part of your of your of your job. So you're literally drowning in in corporate paperwork that's required for various departments. And I lost that sort of feel of, of boots on the ground and building things from the ground up and scribbling over plans and designing camps and hospitals and plants and and mines and coal roads, which is which is really what being a mining engineer, in my opinion, is all about. So I guess, you know, you can stick your safety boots on and a pair of shorts and a khaki shirt and a reflective vest and get back on the ground as, as often as you like and, and really start to, to, to lay the mine out from, from first principles. And, you know, Greenfields is great because you design the destiny of that mine. You're not inheriting somebody else's mistakes. You're not inheriting a culture that, that is difficult to change. You put the culture in right at the beginning you can build it to the way it should be built. And ultimately, Greenfields Mines turn out to be a whole lot more successful than, than taking over an asset that's, that's been running for a long time and you have to try and change the sort of thought process and culture of people that have been there for 20 years. So I, I, I'm excited about that. Um, I love West Africa. I think it's a great jurisdiction. Um, I've worked in some much tougher jurisdictions than that. Um, and, I, and I just like the fact that we have an opportunity to go out there and build something um, over the course of the next two or three years, it will, will hopefully turn into a very, you know, large, free cash flow generating project. Mm. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about Mali, um, and I suppose it has experienced some negative attention um, over the sort of short term period. Um, how do you find operating in Mali? And I'm wondering if you give our, our audience, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, someone that hasn't been to Mali. What you what you experience working in that country? What's what's the good good things and maybe some negative things that you might experience, which obviously you can you can overturn. So, so look, I think first of all, Mali is a country of two halves. So the, the south and the west um, is 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 the safe bit, and the, the centre and the north is the bit that everybody talks about, which is where the, all of these sort of random attacks happen on the military and 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 uh, civilians and villages and things like that and you know it pretty much is cut down the middle and i guess the southern and western part of mali is very much more like a senegal um a guinea uh, an ivory coast which is peace peace loving um really nice people very willing to work well educated um you can pretty much build your whole workforce out of west african labor you don't have to bring in a whole bunch of expensive expats so that's a really big advantage i mean mining has been going on in west africa for over 100 years so you can take your pick of the, the creme de la creme of, of the of mine planners surveyors geologists process plant people and you don't have to look much further than the surrounding countries and mali um mali gets a bad rap i guess um and the frustrating bit about it is these you know like we had last august or july a military coup um, that, that's sort of the third one in about 20 years. 
seems to be a sort of a repetitive thing every eight to nine years. And that that really does destabilize the, the investor's perception of, of the stability of the country. In this case, you know, I'm very positive about the outcome of this, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, I guess we had a government in place in its second term that had lost the population. Um, they were doing things that the population weren't happy about. And effectively, as a government, they'd really stalled and they weren't doing anything. So it was very difficult to get things approved. It was very difficult to get to see any of the ministers. Um, and where, as I started in Mali, it was actually a pleasure to go and deal with the ministries because they would see you at a minute's notice. You could turn up. You could be frank and open with them. From about, uh, I guess, April last year to about July last year, it just became very difficult to do anything, and get anything approved. The coup happened, it was bloodless. It was almost a textbook coup in the sense that there was no shots fired, it was bloodless, nobody was, was injured. And, you know, the president stepped down willingly and I think he knew his time was up. And the military quickly put in a transitional government that, that was really the conduit for, for new elections in maybe 18 to 24 months' time. What we've seen with the transitional government, although there has been a little bit of criticism about how quickly it's got up and running, is very much a government that wants to get things going again. Um, everything that we've gone in and asked for, we've, 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 we've had very, very good feedback and, and advice and, and help. Um, so we're positive. And I think that Mali will come out of this a stronger country. Um, you're still seeing a lot of investment going into Mali. So it's not as though the international mining companies have pulled back. In fact, I think there's more investment now in the last 12 months than there has been for maybe the last three or four years. So I, I think it's a good jurisdiction. Um, you know, it's, a, it's challenging in the sense that the road network is a little bit rough. Um, although logistics into Mali is very straightforward, in Mali, the logistics are a little bit more challenging. We've got a, we've got a river to cross, for example, which is pretty large. Um, and we've got, a, we've got two rivers to cross. One, we need to rebuild a bridge. The other one has a sort of a pontoon boat. Um, so logistics is a little bit challenging, but nothing that's insurmountable in any way. The people are fantastic. Uh, I've got all the time in the world for the Malian people. I think they 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 value foreign investment and they value um, um, starting up a new mine in a new region. We have excellent relationships with the local villages and the village chiefs. Um, and you know, to give you an idea about how safe it is, we obviously when when the the, the lockdowns happened, a lot of our expats left site, um, and we left the camp effectively to its own devices and we came back six months later and there had not been anything stolen, there'd been no break-ins um, and, and the Malian people around there really looked up to, to us to, 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 to show that they want, want us there and they want us to, 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 to build this mine. So I'm, I'm very positive about it. I, I think it's a, a great country to operate in and hopefully once this government sort of gets its, its ball rolling a little bit quicker then we'll see um, more investment coming in and, and more mines being built. Yeah. What, what would you say, um, what do mining companies look for and why would they invest in Mali, say, compared to other West African countries? I mean, what, what is unique about Mali that's probably different to some of the other, the other surrounding countries? Look, I don't, I don't think there's anything specifically more unique. Um, I think the Mali Burimian Greenstone Belt is very much better understood than maybe... Um, Senegal or Guinea and, and places like that that have been less invested in. Um, you know, Anglo Gold has been in Mali since the, the 1990s, so um, or 1980s, I think. So 
it's a very well understood geology. It's a very straightforward geology. Um, the gold liberates quite nicely. Um, Ghana is obviously probably a little bit further down the maturity curve in terms of how many companies are operating there. Um, but Mali is definitely up there in the top three. Um, and generally, the government have done a great job in keeping the mines and industry separate from some of the issues that are happening in the centre and the north. Um, so you don't get these incidents like very unfortunately happened in Burkina Faso, where the mines suddenly start getting attacked by these, um, you know, these, these rebels. And um, Mali Touchwood has been very successful in, in sort of keeping that, that divide between some of the troubles in the centre of the north and, and, and really where most of their foreign income comes from. Yeah. What, what challenges do you see mining companies facing if they were looking to sort of um, invest or go into Mali? Um, no, I, I think, it, look, in reality, any, any project in Africa has a risk attached to it. A lot of it is political risk. It's very difficult to say that in, you know, a mine life is 20 to 30 years, hopefully. Do we know what that country is going to look like in 20 to 30 years? Um, you've got a, a, a fair period of time between putting your first bill in the ground and getting the return on the investment. Do we really know what's going to happen in that time? So there's always political risk that is attached to, to these sorts of projects. So your hurdle rate or your return on investment has to be so much higher than maybe in a country like Canada or Australia, where you know that the, 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 the regime is stable and the country is stable and the economy is stable. So I think when you look at, at countries in West Africa or Central Africa, it doesn't really matter. Um, investors are looking for a, a better return on their investment. They're looking for a quicker return on their investment. Um, they have to have some sort of appetite for risk because there are risks there. There's no doubt about that. Um, but that being said, we've got um, plenty of gold in the ground. Um, you know, Mali is probably still only 10% explored. Um, most of the country along that belt is small little concessions and small junior miners that aren't doing much. So there's this massive opportunity in this region to, to see a lot of consolidation and well, you're seeing it already with Endeavour Taranga, for example, but there's, that's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much opportunity here in the next five years to see consolidation, snapping up bigger land packages, getting more ounces out, and it's only going to be good for the countries. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, going back to African Gold Group, um, you've just recently raised some capital through a uh, pro private placement. Um, what would that money allow you to achieve um, sort of in the near term? Um, and what is the sort of broader plan, plan for you guys over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I guess, um, look, we, we, we're just closing it out now. That's why it's been a bit of a hectic week. Um, but it's been very positive. Uh, from, from the investor's point of view. Um, the money is mainly going to be focused on, on drilling. Um, now, you know, often people say, well, you've got a DFS, you can build this thing. Why don't you go ahead and build it? The one thing that I mentioned a little bit earlier was this massive exploration upside that we have on this project. And to put that into perspective, we've got about a 2.3 million ounce resource measured indicated and inferred, um, a 755,000 ounce reserve but all of that is focused on four kilometers of strike. We have 55 kilometers of strike on this property. So effectively, we've only drilled 8% of the overall property. That means that every ounce of gold that we can add to this resource and ultimately the reserve adds value to the project. And certainly right now, in terms of where is the best place to put some money, um, it is definitely in, in, in the ground and into resource ounces. 
Um, we have a few sort of milestone targets that we would like to achieve by mid-year, um, and that's obviously dependent upon results, but we would like to get to a million ounces of reserve. That's really key for us. That gives us the 10-year, 100,000-ounce mine life, which is really a big box-ticking exercise for, for, for a lot of institutional investors. Um, we believe that we can do it. We have a lot of low-hanging fruit um, in terms of inferred oxide ounces that we can convert quite quickly. We just need to put some drill holes in between. And we're going to focus on doing that. I think longer term, <clears throat> once we hit the million ounces, we will obviously continue to drill if we have the funds. But then really the focus is going to be on, on, on you know, re-rating and how do we get to a, to a position where we can build this thing. Because, um, you know, although gold price has been under pressure, it's still very high. Um, you know, at $782 an ounce all in sustaining cost, you're pretty much still able to generate a pre-tax free cash of $1,000 an ounce. So it's crazy sort of cash flows that these mines can push out, even at these sorts of gold prices. So it makes a whole lot of sense that when you can build it, and it's a great project, then build it, continue to drill, continue to add ounces, replace the ounces that you're mining out, increase the mine life and potentially increase the output from the project as, as you go along. And, you know, we've always worked, look, I, I worked in Glencore, and Glencore, you've almost worked on the premise that if they wanted 100,000 tonnes of copper, within a year, they'll be asking you to get 200,000 tonnes of copper. So when we design our plants, we always design them in a way that we can add an additional mill, additional tanks, additional elution columns, additional um, furnaces. And we've done that with this project. So we know that we have this potential to not only extend the mine life through this drilling program, which is key, but also to potentially increase the, the annual output of ounces. Um, and if we can do that, then suddenly this project becomes a whole lot more valuable um, and people will become quite interested in us. Yeah. Um, what do you think makes uh, African Gold Group different to the various other gold prospects out there at the moment? Well, we're further advanced. There's very few projects um, that have permitted so they're fully permitted and, and very few projects that are ready to push the button to start construction um, although we, we have a definitive feasibility study we continued further than that and we have about 90 percent of our detailed engineering complete as well now what that does is it gives you about a six-month head start when you push the button to build the mine because you've done most of the, the, the designs um, so i guess there's a handful of us out there that are in this position um, I, I think that it's a very easy and straightforward project in the sense that we don't have difficult geology, we don't have um, complicated process plants that have to take out sulfides first and oxides second. This is very straightforward for us. And um, ultimately, for me, it's, uh, it, it's something that can be put together and built in 19 months. So, you know, should we be fortunate enough to raise the capital, 19 months later, there's first gold coming out of this plant. Yeah. Um, it's clear from some of your press releases that ESG is very important to you and the company. Um, yeah. What kind of work have you been doing in country and what's the relationship uh, relationship between um, you and uh, obviously the local community? Um, and how do you think this will benefit you as a company moving forward? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. You know, the, Part of it is selfish because you you have to be a good neighbour in mining. There's no there's no other way around it, and we've seen it time and time again in the mining industry. Where when there's conflict between the mine and the local community, whether it's in Peru or other parts of Africa, 
you have a very unhappy, unsettled relationship throughout your mind life. And typically it ultimately involves, it results in roads being blocked and, you know, theft on the mind and all sorts of other things. So it makes a whole lot of sense when you come into these fairly rural, fairly poor communities to, to, to when you get established to firstly try and look at ways in which you can enrich that local community. Um, you know, unfortunately in Africa, once you move outside of the capital, a lot of money from taxes doesn't filter back down to some of these regions. So it is really incumbent upon the big investors in those communities to assist those communities in, in growing and becoming more wealthy um, and, and, and making them a, a lot more self-sustainable. So all through my mining career, I've always spent a lot of time on the ESG side or the social side, CSR side. And this is no different here. So when we first got there in August 2019, when I joined, I spent a lot of time sitting with the local village chiefs. Um, I had to hear their concerns. This mine has been promised for many, many years and nothing's ever happened. So the general feeling was, was of malaise. It's like, oh, here we go. New management, new people, nothing's going to happen. So what we did was we, we took it in bite-sized chunks and we said to them, okay, look, we can't promise you when the mine is going to be built, but there's a lot of work that we have to do between now and construction. So we'll promise to, to employ locally. So every single person that, that we want to employ will come from a list that is generated from each of the three villages around us. We will make sure we do it in a very fair way. So we will pay higher than the, the, the minimum wage, but in return, you know, we expect that you will assist us in getting the right people in for the right job. So all through the drilling campaign, all through the sampling campaigns, we've employed local labour from the villages. And already we're starting to see some, some good money flow back into those villages. And you can immediately see the chat. You can see more goods available in the shops. People's houses are starting to look a little bit better. So we, we, we did that as a first step. Clearly, that's just the first step. So we said to the chief, look, once we start moving into the construction phase, um, we will work together with you to develop some projects, some corporate social responsibility projects. These are typically investments in schools, in hospitals, in, um, in infrastructure, like fixing up the roads and bridges and things. Um, it's, it will be done in partnership with some of our service providers. So we believe in pulling those in with this process as well. So they're all part of, they own this thing as well. So a good example is, if we're putting up the, the solar power plant, which I'll talk about in a minute, there'll be a few spare solar panels. If we can put those onto the roof of the local hospital, that hospital has power to run their fridges. And it's game changer in terms of being able to hold vaccinations and medication and things like that. So that's a simple idea, but it is very, very effective. You also can't do anything without the, 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 the approval of the local chiefs, because again, I've seen this happen so many times where a mining company proudly delivers a new borehole to a village chief and he says, well, why did you put it over there? My village has got to walk two kilometres to get there. You know, if you'd have asked me, I would have given you another, another land position. So it really is important to continue this engagement. And we have a full-time uh, local Malian chap who's very entrenched in the community, really feeding back that intelligence to us on, on the sort of happiness or unhappiness of the local communities. As well with us, um, you know, we, we, we are very much in a sort of a, a surrounding village environment. So we have to be very cognizant of our emissions, our environmental side, make sure we don't do anything to potentially jeopardize the water supply. So on the E part of the ESG, it's really important that we make sure that when we design this mine, we design it to the highest specification. So again, this is not how oh, we're in the middle of Africa, we'll take shortcuts. This is 
we will design our tailings dam to the ICMM international standards. We will line it to make sure there's no possibility that any arsenic can, can go into the local water supply. And we will make sure that we can provide clean drinking water for most of the villages around us. So that's a really important part of, of the ESG as well. And then I think the other thing is that Mali doesn't have a, a, a national grid. So you can't just plug your cell phone in and you get power. Most mines in Mali are powered by diesel or heavy fuel or generator plants. These are big, they're, no, they're noisy, they're cumbersome, they burn a lot of fuel. Um, we've decided to go a different route um, and go for a hybrid solar battery and, and generator solution. So when you've got 10, 11 hours of sunlight every day, it makes a whole lot of sense to harness that. Uh, during the sort of late afternoon as the sun goes down, the batteries kick in and then obviously at night you have to run the, the, the diesel power plant. But what that does is not only massively reduce your carbon footprint immensely by probably about 45%, it also allows you to generate about 40% of your power from green energy. It saves us about 5 million litres of diesel a year that we would typically have to put into these generators. And ultimately, it blends our power costs down from something around 25 to 30 cents, which you would get if you had a solely a diesel plant, down to about 15 cents per kilowatt hour. So, you know, all of these things are win-wins. It, it, it's environmentally good for the world, but it's also environmentally good for the community. But in return, we also get we get the kicker of lower fuel, lower lower um, power costs, and and more efficient energy. So. They're the sort of things that I'm really passionate about and, and, and I've always been passionate about it. And certainly once we get going, we'll really get stuck into some great corporate projects. They don't cost a lot. It's just about getting things in that the community needs and they're sustainable. So when you're gone and the mine is finished and you've taken all the gold out, these villages still have a, an income and, a, and, a, and some security as well. So that's what we're keen on. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, solar panels and uh, the local hospital. Just wondered if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, so again, I mean, we, we, we're just about to, to, to award a contract to a company that's going to put in effectively 12 hectares of solar panels, which will give us the power that we require to run our plant. You know, 12 hectares is quite a big area. Um, it's about 50 acres. Um, what we've said to them is we would expect you as part of our partnership with you for you to provide some solar panels on top of that to be, to be able to then put into the hospital so that the hospital can have its own little source of power during the daylight hours to keep some of these key functions running. We've also over-designed the power plant. So we've probably got about one and a half megawatts of additional energy. And that gives us a little bit of flexibility and leeway to be able to provide some of the village with, with power as and if required. So there's obviously a, a bit of an expansion um, sort of what do you want to call it, a bit of an expansion sort of contingency in there. But ultimately, we, we could potentially provide a little bit, bit of power to some of the key um, village village villages around us. So, yeah, look, I mean, um, it doesn't matter whether you bring on a mining contractor, they've got equipment, it's easy to clear land to, to get agriculture going. Um, drillers to do the exploration drilling, it's easy to drill some boreholes for, for, for water for the village. And in my mind, if, if you want to come and be a supplier on, on, on my mind, then we would expect you to have the same sort of attitude towards corporate social responsibility that we do. And therefore, we will partner together in doing some of these projects. And it's been very successful for me doing that in, in the Congo and in Zambia. Um, and I don't see why it will be any different here. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think, I think a lot of companies should take that stance as well. 
So um, it's good on you that you've you've learned that in some of the companies that you've been in, in and now you're introducing it into African Gold Group. Um, yeah. Have you got any sort of M&A ambitions for the company at all? Look, I think we're, all, we're always looking um, to, to do real serious M&A, sort of got to have some, some cash. Um, I think that right now we're probably the other way. We're, we're sort of fending off M&A activity because we're very cheap for what we've got in terms of, of, of value in the ground. Um, we don't we don't want to sell at, at sort of these rates, these prices. It doesn't make any sense to us. Um, but there are some very, I think, good opportunities in the next couple of years to put two or three of these companies together into a sort of a, a larger company where it has a little bit of um, uh, weight behind it to be able to, to raise money in the markets with potentially two or three projects at, at various stages of development that could, you know, create another small junior to mid-tier minor over the next four to five years. And, you know, the, the whole game changes and it doesn't matter which company you look at in West Africa, the minute you start producing gold um, in this market, and, and you, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a little company producing 50,000 ounces, you've probably got $30 million of free cash flow a year sitting there burning a hole in your pocket. If you don't want to give it back to the banks and you don't want to give it back to the, the shareholders and dividends, you've got a, a war chest to go out there and have a look around. And there's plenty of projects around that are at various stages that could be quite exciting. So, yeah, I think we're always looking at projects that come across our desk. Um, if it makes sense to our shareholders, and our future value in that, we would absolutely have a look at it. Um, and, you know, if you had to ask me what my ambitions were, it's not to just drill this thing out and then set it to somebody like, you know, Resolute or, or Endeavor. It's to get this project going and then to grow, to build the next project and the next project and suddenly become the next mid-tier miner in Africa. And that would be my ambition over the next five to eight years. Yeah. And um, I was going to say, as, as a concluding uh, comment, what is your ultimate vision for African Gold Group? And, and I suppose thinking around timelines and um, and what would you want to achieve with the company? Yeah, so look, I think right now the stock is, is highly undervalued. You know, it doesn't matter which, which metric you look at. Um, we, we probably should be up in the 100 plus million Canadian range. Um, a lot of our peers are there. Um, I guess we're a little bit of... Uh, discounted because of the Mali factor, which people don't necessarily always understand, um, and, and a couple of other issues. But that being said, um, I think that the first ambition is to, is to get to that million ounce reserve number, which will happen by mid-year. Um, if we can continue to drill, then we'll drill, because every drill hole that you put in where there's gold and it adds to your value. I would love to think that we could get be in a position towards the end of this year to be able to, to raise the capital that we require to build it. Um, that's a two-year process, I guess, or nine, 19, 20-month process to build it. It's the first gold. Um, but whilst that building is going on and drilling is going on, um, look for other opportunities around. And I guess if nothing comes around, then in three years' time, you'll be producing $60, $70 million in free cash, and you have a you have a bit of a war chest to go out there and really hunt and have a look around for some, for some good acquisitions. And this is not going to slow down, Rob, in the next five years. You know, gold might be going through a bit of a dip now, but the M&A activity in the gold market is going to continue unabounded for the next three to five years, in my opinion. And you're going to see two things happen. The one is you're going to see these new majors developing, like Taranga Endeavour. Um, you know, they're, 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 a, they're a senior miner now. So 
what happens with them is they start to drop off a lot of projects down the back end that don't fit their new production profile number, same as Barrick did a few years ago. Um, so they come up for grabs and they, you know, they're all, these guys do ex exploration properly. So you know that you're picking up a good asset there. Um, there's going to be opportunities to, to take over, I guess, slightly earlier stage junior miners than us that have, have got a resource declared, um, know that they've got some good upside, but really don't know how to take this thing from exploration into production. They're good opportunities for us as well. So I'd like to see us being quite aggressive in terms of getting this product project into production, but then also to be quite aggressive in having a look at growing the company quite quickly. And if in five to eight years time, I can do an epilogue in my book that says, well, this is how I finished my career as a, as a mid-tier gold miner, then I think I've probably been a, been a good mining engineer for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, hopefully your book's been produced by then. So uh, yeah, it may... <laughs> So it might only have a, the the start the start part, but not the ending. But um, no, nah. I mean, you could you could do a volume two, I guess, if I'm still around. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Danny, really appreciate your time um, in taking the time to obviously um, do this podcast. If our audience wants to reach out to you and, and um, find out more about um, what African Gold Group are doing um, and more about yourself, how can they go about doing that? So we, we're on all the social media, but I think the best thing to do is go onto the website, which is www.africangoldgroup.com. There you've got the links to Twitter, Instagram, um, and LinkedIn. Uh, we're quite active on all of those. On the website as well is my telephone number and my email address. So I'm very happy to, to answer any questions or, or set up calls outside of this. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I hope it's been informative and and, and we're sort of getting a bit a bit better known in this industry. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, uh, I'll put all the contact information and the social media um, platforms that you mentioned below in the, the show notes of this. But yeah, no, definitely. I've, I've obviously learned a few things that you've said around Mali, um, and I'm sure I'll be watching you um, and your progress um, over the coming years also. So hopefully our audience... Um, will follow follow you as well um i appreciate if you can share this podcast um and youtube uh video to people that you know in the industry um whether that's mining professionals whether that's investors that are uh, maybe looking to invest in um in the industry um it's it sounds like obviously african gold group do have a um, a good story to tell so um really appreciate your time danny again um and i'm sure to to watch your story Good, um, Rob. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.